Okay, next we turn to one of the favorite parts of the day, which is our case-based discussions. Um, we're gonna be led today by a, an antiretroviral therapy expert, uh, Dr. Joel Gallant, who was previously at Hopkins and currently is in Santa Fe. And uh, can I ask the panel members also to come up? Okay, so um, we're gonna talk about strategies. Here are my, my sins. Are the objectives. So let's first do an audience response question. According to treatment guidelines, which of the following is not a valid reason by itself to switch therapy in a virologically suppressed patient? One, to simplify dosing. Two, to eliminate food restrictions. Three, to ensure the patient is on a recommended regimen. Four, to prevent toxicity. Or five, none of the above, meaning that all of those are valid reasons to switch. Armor hot dogs. <laughs> what kind of kids eat armor hot dogs? I guess we don't need to poll uh, the, the panel about what song this is. Yeah. Okay. Can I press the button to see the answers? There we go. Oh. Okay, interesting. All right. Well, we're not going to talk about it now. We're going to talk about it at the end. Okay, so first case, JP, and this is, this is kind of just a, a warm-up case, just to kind of, there's no right answer, just to get an idea of what you'd like to prescribe. So JP is a 28-year-old, otherwise healthy grad student. He recently diagnosed with HIV. Baseline CD4 is 653. Viral load is 36,000. He has a wild-type virus, normal renal function, transaminases, lipids, surface antigen, and hep C negative. His partner is negative. They occasionally have sex with other partners. Uh, STD screening is negative, and he said he'll start if you recommend it, and he thinks he can be adherent. So kind of a generic patient, if there is such a thing. So what would you start? And now let me ask a question. How, if, if we use these uh, CME-approved abbreviations, do you all know what we're talking about? Uh, is there anybody who needs brand names to know what these are? It's <laughs> a pretty sophisticated audience. Okay, then we'll follow the CME rules today. So uh, I won't read them all, but uh, if you know what they are, uh, I think we can go ahead and vote. Oops. Ah, you already voted. Okay. All right. So uh, a lot of people want ECF-TAF, and uh, about a quarter want uh, Dolutegravir FTC-TAF. And again, there's no right or wrong answer here. Um, just wanted to kind of get people's ideas. So panel, what do you think? You're nodding your head. I was nodding off, Joel. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, because you do this so it's often. It's too early for that, Joel. We yeah. just started. Um, as you pointed out, there's, there's a lot of good choices here. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a lot of this is individualization as to what the patient prefers. Um, I think uh, my favorites would be a dolutegravir-based regimen. And then I would talk to him, is one pill once a day important, yes or no? Um, I don't know if you mentioned HLA B5701. In he there. doesn't have that back yet. but It's pending. Yeah. So obviously you wouldn't want to start the back right. of your regimen until you have that. Some patients say, I want absolutely one pill once a day. And uh, he has no cardiac risk factors, so a back of would probably be a reasonable thing if he's HLA B5701 negative. Mm -hmm. If he's willing to do two pills, I might go with choice number five, the uh, TAF-FTC-Dolutegravir. 
Um, thinking dolutegravir here, it's once a day. It doesn't require boosting, so the most popular answer in the audience is the boosted L-vitegravir. Um, we know L-vitegravir has a lower barrier to resistance, and so I tend to, to not use it as much. And then the boosting, I think, can be a problem with drug-drug interactions and GI. Um, he's not on other drugs, so that's not a, an absolute contraindication. Um, some people go back to NNRTIs. I think 0% uh, shows a Fabarin's base. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. It'd be the most popular choice worldwide, certainly. Um, real pivarine reasonable here is viral load is below 100,000 and is CD4 um, is above 200. So that would be another option. Got to be careful because he would need to take it with food and that's, that's a problem for some people. And I probably should have said the TAF version of that rather than the <coughs> PDF. I didn't update it. But right. Oh, I, yeah. And then uh, obviously if he's on PPIs, which this patient isn't, he wouldn't want to do it. Um, protease inhibitor in this guy, I don't see a need to go to that. It, it's obviously more pills. Um, everyone knows they are working on a one pill once a day, TAF, Darunavir um, with FTC for the future. So that might be more relevant then. So those are my initial thoughts. Okay. Any uh, divergent ideas from the panel? I'm glad you brought up the drug interactions, and I think the one thing, it, it is true that he isn't really on any other drugs. On the other hand, who doesn't take Flonase, right? So uh, now that it's available over the counter, we have to be careful about that fluticasone interaction. Whenever I start somebody on uh, a boosted regimen, I always tell them about over-the-counter fluticasone for allergies is a, a no-no. We should mention one more thing. I think a lot of people think boosted protease inhibitor you know, has a high barrier to resistance, and then they move to, well, boosted integrase inhibitor has a high barrier to resistance. That's not true. So L-vitegravir continues to have a low barrier um, compared to dolutegravir, which requires more than one mutation pill. Not that we've seen a lot of L-vitegravir <laughs> resistance in trials or mm -hmm. in practice. It's still quite uncommon, but it is more common than the dolutegravir. And I, I'd also add, this guy is going to age, and so it's possible other drugs are going to come into the picture. So choosing a regimen that would keep your most options open in terms of additional therapy in the future is always a good choice. Gene? Can I just ask about the abacavir? So, um, you know, he's young now, but as John just pointed out, he won't always be young, sadly, as we were finding out in ourselves. Um, so do you, like, what are people thinking about starting abacavir in a population like this and then 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line? I mean, hopefully we won't have to be treating him that long, but do you think that over time you need to reassess their risk carefully and then do a switch? And then if that's the case, why start it? Well, um, you're looking at me. I mean, abacavir has not been associated with cumulative cardiac toxicity. It's been associated with an increased risk mm -hmm. in the, you know, initial phases in people with risk factors. So I wouldn't worry that I was causing him to have downstream problems by using abacavir, because, and, and not to mention that it's unlikely that anybody we start today is going to be on the same regimen 30 years from now. Uh, Trip, do you? Yeah, we and we still don't know the mechanism right. of this, how abacavir predisposes to cardiac events. And, and everyone should remember, it's still controversial as to whether abacavir is actually linked, but all the events they saw were in people with multiple cardiac risk factors. The most advanced. The, so with yeah. you know, three or four or five. So if you have somebody who has multiple cardiac risks, you know, I, I wouldn't say, hmm, the data don't seem, you know, they're controversial. Just, I wouldn't use it. Why, why tempt fate in that case? He doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. I mean, he it. doesn't have a surface I mean, also, you, when you, you know, I don't know if he's still sexually active, and the calf gives, calf or snotrier would give some protection mm -hmm. as well against, so, I mean, you could vaccinate him. Of course, him. we are going to vaccinate him, yeah. yeah. 
Okay. Uh, well, do you hear the DHHS guidelines and lots of initials? Um, basically, what they updated was they added TAF, but they kept TDF on the list. Um, and that was really the main change they made from previous uh, regimens. I, I, now I'm, I'm a little biased because I'm on the IASUSA panel, but I think their new recommendations were a little more gutsy. Um, they show only integrase-based regimens. They removed TDF in favor of TAF, um, and there are now four uh, recommended regimens um, in those guidelines. They have a section for what they, it, rather than calling it alternative, they called it options when integrase inhibitors are not an option. Hard to figure out who those people would be, but I guess they're out there. And those are, you can see that list there as well. All right, let's move on to our next case. Can, can uh, I just add, yeah. the, the European guidelines just got updated just to show you, one, I th one thing that's really interesting to watch is we're all looking at the same data. Right. So DHHS decided this, IAS did that, not the same as you point out. And then the Europeans keep uh, real pivotry in the recommended regimens as well, and the British guidelines actually keep atazanavir mm -hmm. in as well. Yeah. So everybody's looking at the same data, but uh, different conclusions. And Tripp is the head of the DHHS panel, so I did not mean to offend you when I oh. referred to our guidelines as being <laughs> more gutsy. It's all good. <laughs> the main reason you'll, you'll probably get there in your next iteration, I suspect. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm offended. <laughs> all right, all right. TF, 28-year-old, gay man diagnosed with HIV in a routine test. He tested negative one year earlier. He was given antibiotics for a mono-like illness six months ago at an urgent care center. He's been having condomless sex with multiple partners and he asked his doctor about PrEP and he was told he should find a specialist. He wasn't referred, he had to do it on his own. The doctor had kind of a grimace on his face when he said that. Um, he sees a nurse and a case manager the day after diagnosis and baseline labs are drawn. He will be seeing a provider in 10 days, and he's interested in starting ART. So when would you start ART? <laughs> One, after he keeps several clinic appointments, which might be around three months. Two, after baseline genotype results are available, which might be two to three weeks. Three, at the provider visit, which might be, which is in 10 days. Or four, if his creatinine is normal and surface antigen is negative in one to two days, or today. You can go ahead and hmm. vote. Wow. Oh, we didn't even get the clock. All right, panel. We got oh my gosh, that's really interesting. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. What so this, is, this has been an issue where I work uh, of a lot of discussion. And, you know, we prefer, of course, that uh, you be able to make the decision with the uh, information provided by a genotype so you can make the best informed decision. But this is a sexually active man. He's had a... Um, has he had, I didn't recall if he'd had uh, STDs in the past. No. Okay. But he's sexually active, and <coughs> it's possible that, you know, he's at risk of transmitting to others. I think you want to start somebody in that situation as soon as possible. Uh, and there aren't a lot of models of immediate in uh, initiation, although there is a good one that's being uh, used in uh, San Francisco, the RAPID model. And I know there's one here in the New York area, if I'm not mistaken, as well, that's being undertaken. Dimitri mentioned this too. This is a, a model where you start the, it's a little bit like um, uh, early immediate prep initiation where you may initiate someone on their medication and look at their labs in the future and then change according to what those labs may be. The difficulty in that situation is what's the antiretroviral regimen that you're going to choose. And some people recommend choosing a regimen. Don't, don't get into that yet because oh, we're going good. to Oh, good. I will not say what that it. is then. <laughs> uh, but I will say that waiting two to three weeks is for a sexually active person where you want to try and help 
uh, him prevent uh, transmitting to others might be too long. Um, an HIV provider visit, I mean, I'm happy that this man um, apparently sought out care, but it was mostly in the context of his own illness, not when he was otherwise feeling well. So I might really want to initiate as soon as I possibly could. Now, that illness, by the way, was about six months ago. That's right. And of course, that was a failed opportunity to diagnose oh, acute yeah. HIV infection. Or mono. I wondered if, if maybe some of the panel members have an opinion on this, um, how to get primary care doctors more engaged. Because I've had a couple patients now who, where this happened, they you know, asked for it and were sort of told they probably didn't need it or their primary care doctor just, I think, didn't know what to do with that situation. And then, um, or, you know, the, even, or the primary care doctors told me at the next visit I was gonna offer it to him mm -hmm. kind of thing, and then he tested positive, so. You wanna talk about that? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, so two thoughts. One is that um, in Seattle, we got around this by actually, and other places have done this too, basically the health department has a cadre of PEP prep providers and it's posted on the website. So you can go to the website, get my name and make an appointment to come see me. And I think that probably has worked better than expecting everybody in primary care to ramp up for PrEP. I will say the caveat though is that there are plenty of providers for whom attitudes about um, uh, sex and drugs is still really pretty primitive. Um, actually, after Judy Aberg's talk uh, last week at ID Week that focused on treatment of substance abuse, um, a provider from my new state of Alabama came up to her and said, you know, he was an ID specialist actually who excoriated her for talking about um, giving these people um, these drugs to prevent infections because they're just going to go on getting exposed and infected and, and I don't see those folks. So um, I think attitudes um, from providers are an underexplored um, barrier to, I mean, very judgmental attitudes, underexplored barrier to people getting PrEP, let alone the fact that there are many good providers out there who'd like to do it but just aren't comfortable doing it because they don't know how to do it yet. Do you want to mention that study at uh, R4P? Yeah. Yeah. Great study in Chicago a couple uh, weeks ago. Tabrina Savernese, uh, uh, Sarah Calabresi, actually, some Italian name. Sarah Calabresi, like, um, like, like yes, I know, I, I can say that because you I, you know, uh, and I'm in New York too, so people get it. Um, so, fantastic study by a medical student at Yale who, uh, or a public health uh, epidemiology student, I think, at Yale, who queried medical students about their attitudes regarding intention to provide PrEP by, to, to patients by the patient's reported sexual behaviors. And guess who the medical students were much more likely to be willing to provide PrEP to? The patients who said they used condoms all the times with the time with their partners. Um, so basically it was a reward for being <laughs> exactly. sexually safe. Oh, you're so good. Yes, we'll give you PrEP. So I think that attitude, it's, it's kind of the tip of the iceberg, and honestly, I think that attitude plays out a lot in a lot of things and a lot of these interactions, and so I think it's worth paying attention to. Trip. Great. So it was just a couple years ago that there was a panel like this on a stage at a national meeting, and they presented a prep case, and then one of the questions was the, the person says that they will not use condoms or don't intend to use condoms. Uh, in fact, it was a person who was already not using condoms but admitted that he would probably use them even less with PrEP. And so even less, exactly happened. So we were all there. But then the question was, would you prescribe PrEP, yes or no? And the whole panel said no. Because he wasn't going to use condoms, I'm not going to prescribe I know this panel's PrEP. not about PrEP, but the cool thing about PrEP is that it's exposing all kinds of sex phobia. Um, and I mean, at every level. And people are squeamish about syphilis, they're squeamish about all these new infections, and people are just gonna have to get over it. Yeah. So, can I just... <laughs> <laughs> the 
voice of Alabama has spoken. <laughs> we're all tied. We're all. She Excellent. can only say these things when she's out of her home state. <laughs> I, I just wanted to point out with this question that um, ID people, as ID people, we're often put in this awkward position, right? Because we're thinking about public health issues when we're trying to take care of one patient. So John made the point that this guy um, would be at very high risk having untreated acute infection of going out and spreading the infection to others. And it motivated you to say, let's, and many of you in the audience, to say, let's treat today. But then on the other hand, we have issues about him. You know, could he have had baseline resistance that we don't know about and might we pick the wrong agent? Or could he have renal insufficiency that's not known about and we, or hepatitis B yeah. infection? And so it, it's interesting that we have to weigh the public health benefits from the individual benefits. And I think we're the only specialty that routinely has to do that. Okay. Well, good discussion. Um, I would add that I had a patient who came to me for PrEP and he was said, his, he was told no by his primary care doctor who said, PrEP is for porn stars. You're not a porn star, are you? <laughs> so, so there you go. I thought so, you were gonna say he brought in the film. So I, I would point out that we're not necessarily starting him on therapy just for public health reasons, of right? Course, of course. We're also starting him on therapy because, at least in Haiti and South Africa, rapid initiation has been shown to increase retention in care, to decrease, uh, to increase uh, viral suppression, and to, to, you know, in the Haitian case, it actually prevented mortality. Mm -hmm. So in San Francisco, they are doing this. Uh, they facilitate same-day appointments. They have scheduling, uh, flexible scheduling for, for providers to see these people quickly. They have certain regimens that are pre-approved. They're available as starter packs. They get people insured quickly, and they have directly observed therapy for the first dose. And this is what they've shown in San Francisco. With uh, On the top is the old CD4-guided approach. In the middle is the universal approach where we started treating everybody, but not immediately. And then the rapid approach, and you can see um, that you skip all those early steps, the referral, the waiting for the first clinic visit, the waiting for the first PCP visit, and just get people on therapy so their viral suppression is occurring uh, within, you know, before two months has passed. Um, so this is uh, being widely done. Now, we, talk, we started to talk about the regimen. So uh, the nurse calls in a provider who quickly shakes hands with the patient, asks a few questions. This is obviously not the, the, the full visit. And ART is started immediately with plans to follow up at the, in 10 days. So what regimen would you start? And the list is there. Uh, well, we're not getting the clock. It's just immediately going. Using the keyboard. Use oh, the use the clicker. Use the okay, cool. Got it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, All right, let's reset one question. Try that again. I'm going to press the button, and the clock will appear. I think. No, it doesn't. Press to the right. No. Oh well. Well, that might be the right vote. Who knows? All right. So, uh, panel, what do you think? Um, are there wrong answers on this list? Are there? Is there a specific right answer? If you're starting with no labs, no resistance testing, no kidney function, nothing. Well, I'd say immediately five is off the table because that's where viral load is really important. You right. want to make sure the viral load is under 100,000 if you're going to consider opening. Um, in the current DHHS guidelines, 
they lean towards initiating with a, um, a boosted protease inhibitor. Or an integrase inhibitor. Or an integrase inhibitor, yeah. that's right. And so in that case, I think the, uh, the choice that most people made would be a very reasonable one, especially given the uh, issues that uh, Trip brought up earlier in terms of treatment. Yeah, I think you wouldn't want to pick number three because we don't have HLA-B5701 exactly. testing. And you right. wouldn't want to pick number six because he could have transmitted um, either uh, M184V and or NNRTI right. resistance. If you jump off from the, um, the PEP guidelines, they say use a boosted protease or dolutegravir. Mm -hmm. uh, they said raltegravir before, but okay. now have updated to dolutegravir. Um, again, the... I think the booster in number one would might be a problem for someone where you have no baseline labs. Why do you say, uh, what, why, what would you need labs for, for a booster? Just liver function and, uh, I don't know, lipids maybe. Here's my, I put together this list. This does not come from San Francisco, although it may be the same. Uh, I listed three regimens that I thought you didn't need labs for. And Trip, maybe you can push back on that if you want with the booster. And then I showed the drugs you need to avoid. Abacavir because of the HLA. TDF, because you need a re renal function, ropivirin, because you need viral load in CD4, and efavirenz and nevirapine, because you need a genotype. So those yeah. would be the three that I thought were mm -hmm. acceptable. You, you could choose to just pick one for your clinic and use it all the time, I suppose. I mean, the thing about the L-Vitagravir the, um, one is if the, if the guy's uh, creatinine comes back elevated, I'm not going to know, is it due to the expected bump mucopisostat, or is it due to underlying renal dysfunction? Well, remember, you're going to have I his guess baseline, have baseline function right, tomorrow. Right, have his baseline right? so tomorrow. the next day, the worst thing that happens is point. you've given him one dose of a drug, and if he comes back and it turns out he was an end-stage kidney failure that you didn't recognize, you've given him one dose of a drug. Well, right? Yeah, that's how you can take it away. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I usually do the... Um, the option that was to draw the labs, give them, I guess it wasn't exactly an option, to draw the labs, give a prescription, and then call them and tell them whether to start taking it. How many of you are doing this in your setting of, of rapid same-day initiation? A few hands. Yeah, I think wow, we'll start to see it, see it more and more. Uh, it's certainly being widely done. Did you have a question? Can you come up? And would you mind if I can come up? So I absolutely agree with starting as, as, as early as possible. I do have a comment regarding the new the PEP. Um, at least in New York and at least in our experience, a lot of companies have asked for prior authorization. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how practical this is, especially for a new patient that comes in and is very confused, has to deal with a lot of stuff goes to the pharmacy and now they start talking about, oh, just a second, have to go back to the doctor, have to do this and that and call the company. So I think it might be a bit confusing. So what we've been doing, we start them on um, TDF-based regimen, usually dolutegravir Shivara, and we talk to them about it. And once we make sure they have insurance and everything, they, they know how to navigate a system. And even they know how to get back to us, then we switch. Yeah. That, that is a current problem. It's hopefully a temporary problem because drug uh, insurance companies will often not put new drugs on their formulary even when there's no cost difference. In this case, TAF is actually cheaper than TDF, but so it should, that should go away over time, but it is an issue right now with some payers. All right, next case. A uh, 48-year-old man with HIV since 2008, 
Nader CD4 was 362, peak viral load was 89,000. He's been on a Favrin's TDF FTC since diagnosis, doing well, undetectable viral load, high CD4. Two years ago, he had been approached about switching because people were switching off of Favrin's, and, but he, he said he had vivid dreams and that was about it, and he kind of liked them, and he, he liked a single tablet regimen, so he didn't want to switch. His kidney function has been good. He's taking Losartan and Atorvastatin. He's HLA-B5701 negative. So what do you recommend today? Um, things are different than they were two years ago. Uh, make no changes, suggest the switch is listed, or order a bone density scan before deciding. Still not getting the clock, but yeah. But uh, we'll assume that this is the actual, mm -hmm. actual vote. So uh, a little more over a third of you want to leave them alone, and then there's a smattering of support for the other options. He's on it, yeah. Sorry, if I haven't said it before. It's okay if you say it, as long as I don't say it. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Intra plug. <laughs> <laughs> I'll visit you in CME jail. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I hear it's nice. Okay. <laughs> All the rebels go to Torture CME jail. Tortured by FDA, yeah. All right, who's, who's gonna, what do you think, Colonel? I mean, I get, I, I don't know. I, 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 I practice at the VA where we, you know, are, we people have been there a long time. We see this very, very often that these people, we have people, uh, you know, who really love their regimen and they don't want to switch. And so the first teaching point I think here is that just because recommendations change isn't necessarily a reason to have to change a person's regimen. These are recommendations for the best thing to do. They're not the federal law. You're not going to go, you're not going to be joining me in CME prison if you, uh, you know, uh, don't change this guy. And what works well, works well. But he may not know fully the, uh, the potential advantages he could experience changing. I mean, I've traveled um, in Africa a lot and had to take um, antimalarials, which had a similar effect to ephedrine's. And you may be having a lot of good dreams for a long time, and then it takes one nightmare, and you're not going <coughs> to take that next pill. But the, the question here really isn't about ephedrine's, because that was addressed a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. The question is now about, you know, TAP is available, right? Mm -hmm. So he's yeah. on, he's an older guy, he's on TDS, You're he's right. doing That's fine. He's on two do we bring that up with him? Do we raise that issue? Yeah, I would. I, I mean, I, I, th I think he deserves to be able to make an informed decision, and so I'd bring that uh, to his awareness so he can think about it. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree with that approach. I don't think it can be dogmatic here, but we owe it to our patients to tell them what the latest data are. Um, this isn't one I think I would go to the mat and insist mm -hmm. that, that they make a change. Um, all of us had patients back in the day who were on AZT-containing regimens doing fine and didn't want to switch, but I pushed people there because we knew lipoatrophy occurred in some percentage. I don't feel as strongly here, or, but he should know that there's a newer form of the same drug that's less toxic, although it would mean going to two pills instead of one. Okay, um, let me just go Jill. through uh, a few slides. Um, oh, yeah, go ahead. Christy had a question. Oh, Sorry, I was just going to say with the Favrins, I've had a, several patients to not realize that other medications could be taken in the morning and all the things with traveling and having to take a Favrins at night. Just bringing that up sometimes makes yeah. them, oh, really? I could take them in the morning, you know? So I think people who've been on it, um, a Favrins for a long time just assume all meds need to be taken at night at the exact same time. And so um, these are what the guidelines say about uh, switching. Uh, you can do it to manage side effects, to manage or prevent drug toxicity, to simplify regimen, 
address food restrictions, to address sugar interactions, to plan for pregnancy. Mm -hmm. An interesting teaching point, they don't mention that you would switch just to, to keep the patient on a recommended regimen. You might want to remember that. And, um, <laughs> um, but these are all reasons. And, and in fact, the uh, alternative, at the top of the alternative regimens, it says in some cases, these regimens would be the preferred mm -hmm. right. for certain yeah. patients. So let me zoom through because this is the only time today that we're talking about sort of basic antiretroviral data. So I'm going to just zoom, zoom through. Now, there's been a ton of recent switch studies in, involving pediatric-calf, so this is be very focused on that. But I just want to go real quickly through them. So there was 108.9 switching from FTC-TDF to FTC-CAF showing um, uh, non-inferiority at weeks 48 and 96. We now have the 1216 just presented in Glasgow, where you went from the TDF version of ropivirine to the CAF combination with ropivirine, again, non-inferior. Same thing with efavirenz, two ropivirine switches where you're switching from TDF to CAF, non-inferior at 48 weeks. Now, of course, what you really care about is toxicity. So in 1089, uh, at 48 and 96 weeks, mm. we saw uh, improved GFR and a reduction in both overall proteinuria and tubular proteinuria in those who switched, whereas in those who stayed on TDF, proteinuria continued to progress. Um, this is in those, the, the other two studies, the ropivirine and efavirenz studies, where you saw, you actually see improvement in kidney function when you switch from TDF to TAF in the ropivirine group. But if you, interestingly, if you go from efavirenz to ropivirine, even though you're switching TDF to TAF, your EGFR goes down. Any comments from the panel about why that would be? This is efavirenz to ropivirine. And the reason is because ropivirine has a cobacystat-like effect. It's one of those drugs on the list that reduces tubular excretion of creatinine, and so you see a very similar yeah. effect. So it's not true to kidney toxicity. It's a sort of pseudo-kidney toxicity. And then here's bone. When you switch from FTC-TDF to FTAF, your bone density goes up. It goes up in the first year, and it continues to go up in the second year. We don't know yet where it plateaus. Um, and then here's the other two studies again. Uh, with that switch, you see increased bone density. So um, advantages of the TDF to TAF switch are greater renal safety, improved bone density, and smaller pill size. I think the disadvantages are that you lose that TDF lipid effect, which it's not that TAF makes your lipids go up, it's that it, it doesn't have the TDF that makes it go down. And of course, TAF is not currently more expensive, but when TDF is eventually available as a generic, then it might be more expensive. Mm -hmm. ISUSA recommendations say if there's no increase in the price of TAF versus that of TDF, switching from TDF to TAF is reasonable even if the patients are not okay. experiencing TDF-related toxic effects. So the outcome, our patient decided to go ahead and make a switch, <laughs> not because of his efavirenz concerns, but because of the greater safety of TAF. He considered just oh. doing uh, FTAF <laughs> and efavirenz, but in the end, he said, well, maybe the dreams weren't always that great. Mm -hmm. um, and he ended up switching to uh, ECF TAF, lived happily ever after. Any comments from the panel from that case? Okay. LM. Now, this is a New Mexico case for sure. So oh. I live in Santa Fe where we have a lot of kind of woo-woo stuff is what we call it. <laughs> um, but people who come woo -woo? from Tau, woo-woo meaning woo -woo. nuts and berries and crystals yeah. and stuff. Okay. But Taos is worse. So when the Taos <laughs> patient comes to Santa Fe, we get scared. So this is a Taos patient, 35-year-old massage therapist taking uh, 
Darunavir uh, and Eftaf with viral load less than 20. He had previously failed efavirenz, which he'd been taking mm. two to three times per week, and he has a K103N mutation. He does not trust Western medicine. He knows his body. The, the most scary words any physician or <laughs> provider can hear. <laughs> Doc, I know my body. Oh. <laughs> well, then why bother drawing a viral load, right? Um, he believes he does not tolerate standard doses of most drugs. He feels he is experiencing a buildup of toxicity, though he can't really point to any side effects. He's not concerned about pill burden as he takes dozens of supplements a day, but he has read about monotherapy, two drug regimens, and intermittent therapy, and would like to reduce the number of toxic chemicals that he puts in his body. Oh, this is when you think about moving back to Baltimore. <laughs> this, seriously. <laughs> How do you approach LM? Uh, here are some choices. Switch to lamivudine plus oh either boosted darunavir or dalutegavir. Switch to dalutegavir or DRV monotherapy. Switch to dalutegavir or Tell him to continue <laughs> his regimen pending more data. Tell him to take his current regimen every other day or suggest chelation therapy to remove toxins, which is widely <laughs> available in Taos. Okay. Oh, yeah, excellent. <laughs> so there are some. there is some support for chelation. I, well, it's not so... <laughs> Never bothered me. It's not covered by insurance. Usually. It's okay. You know. What do you think, panel? What are you going to do with LM? All right, what the heck is he taking on the side? I mean, that's the first thing I would oh, know. Oh, he you has know? a bag full. If he can, because that's, uh, to me, that would be, I would want to bring to his attention. But they are natural. Yeah, well, you know, there are so a lot of natural things. So is poison ivy. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, so is botulism. But, um... <laughs> But I want to bring to his attention that, you know, if you're worried about poisoning yourself, the things you're taking aren't really subject to a lot of intensive scrutiny, potentially. And, you know, it could be also interfering with what you're taking. And so I want to have that discussion. That discussion was had before, and it went nowhere. Mm, okay. So that's, that's not, right. we're not, we can't bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I just want to mention before switching is to really go back and check his hep C. I've seen a, you know, these situations where parent, patients are sort of requesting switches, and I think it's been so long since providers thought about it because they've just been depressed on, on tenofovir, and then when they make a switch to either bacavir or to you know, one of these, you just And he's immune to hep B. So this guy wants to make a change. It's right. pretty clear. So it's better to, I think, address it head on. And he has failed a prior regimen. It's important to remind him of that because he is doing so well on the current regimen. You said he had a K103 associated with efavirenz. We, we need to remember that and not lose out. Um, of all these alternative fewer drug options, I think the one that would jump out, he's on boosted darunavir yeah. now. Mm -hmm. When I make a change, I like to make as few changes as possible. <coughs> so one thing you could do um, that would that there's data to support would be to simplify to boosted darunavir plus 3TC and actually get rid of the tenofovir elements of the regimen. There was some data in Glasgow presented. Uh, this was a fascinating study, actually. It was head-to-head, -head, two nukes plus boosted mm -hmm. PI with darunavir versus just 3TC plus boosted darunavir. And the 3TC PI mm. regimen, surprisingly, in this study was actually superior to the t traditional wow. two nukes. Um, other studies have shown non-inferiority of that approach. That would be the most conventional. Everything else you list here, I think there's fewer data available. Yeah. Dalutegavir 3TC, you know, we just, we have very few data on that regimen. It's being explored. 
And then the monotherapies, we know um, both the boosted PI or the dolutegravir have failed in some patients, and we don't want failure for this guy. Dolutegravir rolpivirine, and again, there's, a, there's some data, but that would be switching his whole regimen, and we know he had some NNRTI yeah. resistance. All right. What do you so think of dolutegravir, dolutegravir boosted nivolumabir? I guess that's your medication. Yeah. 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 Is that why that wasn't Dolutegravir plus boosted darunavir? Yeah, I don't think he would view that as being enough of a change. Plus, there, there's no data on it, although we use it all the time because right. we say, mm -hmm. yeah. well, the best PI plus the best integrase, but there's, it's never been studied, and every time we do a integrase PI combo, there's always something wrong with it. We don't never quite match it. Just it bring that performs up. well. Yeah. Let's go. We have a little bit of data. These, these are kind of nuke-sparing uh, studies or nuke light studies, and I would just point out that, as I said, generally when we combine a boosted PI with an integrase inhibitor, it, there's always been problems. It, it never works as well as you think it should, and, but when we combine it with, with a reverse transcriptase inhibitor, in most cases 3TC, we've seen uh, better results. So um, I don't know why that is, but it seems like the best nuke sparing regimens have nukes. Um, we do, uh, Trip mentioned uh, boosted darunavir with 3TC. We have the Gardell study with lopinavir and 3TC, which was uh, as good as a standard uh, option and better tolerated, though there had been a lot of AZT use in the control arm. Uh, then we, he mentioned paddle, and this is uh, dolutegravir with lamivudine. Um, these are the 24-week data where everybody was suppressed. Um, at 48 weeks, there was one death who was suppressed before death, and there was somebody who failed but did not have measurable resistance and then resuppressed without making a change in his regimen. So this is now being studied in two larger uh, phase trials in the United States. I want to say a word about dolutegravir monotherapy. It, there have now been four, maybe five, uh, so-called observational studies of, of this, in all in Europe. Um, a total of 113 virologically suppressed patients. Already we've seen five patients fail with resistance. That's 4.4% versus 0% when dolutegravir is combined with another agent. So mm -hmm. don't do this. And, and we should stop reporting yeah. these, these, these studies um, because, you know, what's the harm in throwing in some lamivudine? Not that I'm suggesting we use dolutegravir lamivudine, but we should study that before we start mm -hmm. studying this, I think. It's interesting. There was a recent publication which put all these together. They called itself an, a meta-analysis. <laughs> <laughs> and, and said 89% success rate with dolutegravir monotherapy. Oh. That's not good enough. That's <laughs> not 99%. So this is what happened. Um, sh he agreed to remain on his three-drug regimen for now, but wanted to switch to the single pill regimen. But he uh, does intend to switch to a one- or two-drug regimen once uh, they're supported by okay. stronger data. So we got to, to string it out a little bit. but. Um, uh, uh, we could only do that by promising him that I, I, I had to say I will be willing to simplify your regimen if you're willing to wait for a little more compelling data. So we kind of compromised on that. Okay. JB. 65-year-old man who would... Question. Yeah. Oh, question. Yeah. The nuke sparing? Show the nuke sparing again. The table? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the nuke sparing, um, 
craze was kind of driven by nuke toxicity, the fear of nuke toxicity. Of course, first it was D4T and AZT, then it was tenofovir and abacavir. Uh, I have to say now with PATH, it's sort of, you know, people aren't as worried about nuke toxicity anymore. There's not many people who can not take either TAF or abacavir. Um, and so, you know, I think the main thing driving these studies now is not, is not fear of nuke toxicity but cost. And so what, you know, what really is pushing these studies, especially the ones with lamivudine, is, is really reduced cost. And that may be why they're be most, a lot of them are being done in Europe or other parts of the world where cost is a big issue. Mm -hmm. But now the dolutegravir lamivudine study is being done in the U.S. JB, 65-year-old man, been doing well for several years. He's on uh, TDF-FTC and twice daily boosted Darunavir with raltegravir and etravirine. Uh, viral load undetectable, CD4-70-63. He comes to me. He's had many different doctors. Uh, he had started treatment in the late 80s and remembers some of his meds that he used to take. There's others he doesn't remember. He, res he remembers being told he had resistance, but he doesn't know what. He's outlived two of his doctors and attempts to... Uh, um, obtained medical records from the survivors have been unsuccessful. <laughs> I know. Uh, some have closed their practices. <laughs> His younger friends are all on single tablet mm. regimens, which he thinks is really cool. He's taking nine pills per day and not happy. He wants to switch to a once daily regimen with as few pills as possible, preferably one. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what do you recommend? I've listed four single tablet regimens. I said I would not recommend a single tablet regimen. I'd simplify his regimen in other ways. I would order a proviral GN type. I would congratulate him on being alive and tell him to count his blessings <laughs> and suck it up. I'm not going to press the clock button yet because I know it, it goes straight to the voting. So go ahead and vote. All right. All right. Oh, interesting. Okay. So the, this, uh, huh. the answer has changed a lot since the last time I presented this. Panel, what do you think? Which, what are the numbers? Uh, so uh, half would order a proviral DNA genotype, and 28% uh, would simplify his regimen in other ways, but there are 12% who would, who would give him a single tablet regimen, dolutegavir, abacavir, lamivudine. And there's still a, f a few people who want him to suck it up. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> as with the previous patient, yeah. you may never see him again if you say that to him. So. Yeah, again, I mean, I, I always try to turn everything into a hepatitis question, because that's <laughs> what I do, but I wouldn't do three without knowing his hep C status, which he didn't give us, and I've seen that mistake over and over, so I just want to keep pointing Good point. that out. Yeah. Assum assuming he's hep B negative, I still probably wouldn't do, I would do a combo of five. I agree. I don't actually think you need the proviral DNA here because you have the history. I mean, he's Well, failed. you don't really have... No, I mean... He doesn't know much about yeah. his history. But you know that this guy has failed multiple nukes, um, including 3TC, and multiple PIs right. and NNRTIs. So you can... I, I mean, you could do a proviral DNA, and if, it, if there's something there, it, it would help you. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to assume that this guy has multi-drug, multi-class resistant, mm -hmm. um, particularly to the older drugs. He he did well on his current regimen. So he's on twice a day boosted darunavir, and that is recommended for PI resistance. I don't see how you get around that one. Well, um, the genotype could help you there. I yeah, mean. but do you believe it? 
Okay, um, we'll come to that. Yeah. Raltegravir's twice a day, so you could you do have an easy simplification there to switch him to once a day doll butegravir that makes a difference to him. Etrovirine, he's given it twice a day. Pharmacokinetics would support once a day dosing of that. Would, would you ever switch him? So, so right now he's on TDF, FTC, and etrovirine. What about going to TAF, FTC, rilpivirine to reduce pilbism? Do you trust rilpivirine in a person who's doing well on etrovirine, I guess is the question. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. A lot they of people do, are doing that. They do oh. have an overlapping resistance profile. Yeah. I don't think there's a lot of data here, but you can do once a day etrovirine yeah. too. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you have them dissolve it in water, it's actually zero pills, right? It's just water. <laughs> so you've reduced him from two pills to zero pills. Yeah, okay. I always point that out to patients. <laughs> It's okay. Yeah, my it's next okay. question was, and what can I mix it with? Yeah. It's, no, it's okay. <laughs> okay. That's what I hear. But I, I don't see how we're going to get away from the twice a day boosted yeah. Darunavir, given that he's failed multiple Proteus inhibitors in the past. So you don't have, you, you, we've talked about Dalyutegravir's uh, barrier to resistance, but you're not uh, at the point where you would just say, who cares what your resistance is as long as you're on Dalyutegravir, it's going to work. Because <laughs> there were people in the audience who voted for that. This guy's made a major achievement, right? He, yeah. he was multi-drug resistant and now has been consistently suppressed for all these years. I, I guess part of it, you have to just talk to him and how dead set is he on a once-a-day regimen? Yeah. Are the results that you're talking about, our site did where it was um, Darunavir was Massive simplification. I'm going to come to that. Gonna oh, talk okay. about that. Mm -hmm. I have a slide yeah. or three. <laughs> All right. So uh, switch studies can be kind of boring to go over because they almost always work. But I did show two at the bottom that didn't work. One that's not terribly relevant to our discussion today, harness, but it does again point out the, the problems with boosted PI and our integrase-based regimens, yet another study where that didn't work out so well. But the one I wanted to focus on was SWITCHMERC, which is the now classic study where they took people who were doing well on a lopinavir-ritonavir-based regimen and randomized them to stay on lopinavir-ritonavir or to switch to raltegravir, and regardless of how much treatment experience or, or resistance they might have, and in, in patients who had previously had virologic failure, switching was not a good idea. They had they were more likely to fail raltegravir than boosted lopinavir. And I always, no matter how old this study gets, I will always show it because it's just a reminder mm -hmm. um, to know the treatment history and, and resistance history. But if you, if you can't know it, if you can't get that information, which may be what happens here, then you really have to be careful about reducing the resistance barrier in your switches. So the, the example that Tripp gave of raltegravir to dolutegravir, no problem. Uh, you're, you're, if anything, you're increasing the barrier. But going from twice a day darunavir to once a day darunavir or to darunavir Kobe could be a problem because we don't know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether he has darunavir mutations. So we talked about the proviral um, DNA. Uh, there is this one that can be ordered, um, and we have some data on its uh, accuracy. So when they looked at overall concordance with historical resistance, so they were doing this in people who, where you knew what their resistance was, it was around 85%. And I would look, the bottom, the bottom bullet is the false omission rate. Missing mutations that were known to be there was 3%. Now, 
Now, I'm I was a little surprised it was that low because in my own experience, I'll see people like this and I'll get one and every once in a while it shows wild type virus and you just shred that. Don't even, <laughs> don't even file it in their records because it's clearly nonsense. But when it does show mutations, as it did in this patient, um, it can be maybe a little more helpful. So in his case, it showed two TAMs, 67 and 219 with a 184V. It showed a 103N. And it showed uh, quite a few protease mutations. But note that none of them are the darunavir mutations that are listed at the bottom, which require you to use twice a day darunavir. And it showed no integrase mm -hmm. mutations. Now, we can come back and talk about, you know, how much you trust this. But we decided to use it um, mm -hmm. for simplification. So what do you recommend now? And this is not a, well, th this is too complicated to come up with multiple choice questions. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to throw it out to the panel. Based on that result, or if you choose to ignore it, what would you do? I mean, Tripp, is, is this where the, I mean, this might be where dolutizavir could be a potential option for this guy? Else. Well, with the, I, with I guess with the, um, that's a good question. I can't remember what his original regimen was, but he he's currently on everything. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's on TDFFTC, boosted darunavir, yeah. roundtegravir. Round yeah, I mean, you know, you're saying we haven't got the boosted darunavir comparison to with uh, you know the uh, INSTE, so I'm not so comfortable with that. I don't know. This is really. I mean, this is. I'm now we're at the point where I would begin to consult somebody. So, consult trip trip. Good. Yeah, it's good. Um, <coughs> you know this. These results pass the SNP test. I mean, this is what we would have predicted without having them. So he has multiple TAMs. He's got the 184V. So had significant nuke resistance. So we're not surprised there. Um, TANAF, TDF, FTC, uh, the TANAFavir is probably still playing a role here. Regardless of this, you know, that's the one nuke that survives in the M184V. In the presence of FTC, will actually enhance mm -hmm. its activity. I probably would make the switch to TAF, as we've discussed before. And in RTI-wise, 103N alone, he was on Efavirenz, but you gave us, I forget if he was on Nivarapine too in the past, we don't know. Um, right. he, I think that was one of the ones he remembered taking, yeah. So, a <coughs> little nervous about that. And then PI-wise, as you, well, he's got six PI mutations, or mm -hmm. seven. Um, yeah, they don't overlap with the darunavir, but I'm still nervous about the ones that didn't pop out. And we wouldn't expect him to have integrase right. inhibitor mutations based on the timing. So I guess I'm sticking with my previous okay. approach to say. So what would your regimen be? So it would be uh, <coughs> TAF FTC, mm -hmm. boosted darunavir twice a day, once a day dal utegravir, and once a day etravirin. Do you think he still needs the etravirin? Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, and you're going to tell us that you switched him to once a day darunavir. <laughs> I can just see it in his eyes. <laughs> well, Trip, if he if you tell him that, he's not going to be very happy. He he won't. He really <laughs> if he says he absolutely wants once a day, then then you have to suck it up and uh, say, all right, all right, we'll try. Okay, that's what you did, right? Well, I'm going to show you first. I'm going to show you some data. So um, this. Joel didn't oh, show science. us the cases in advance. Science. We did not <laughs> see these. This is one of my favorite uh, studies from, from last year because it involved people kind of like this guy who were on very complex regimens and had multiple resistance uh, mutations. And they were randomized to go to a two-pill, once-a-day combination of ECF-TAF plus 800 of darunavir or to make that switch after, 24, mm -hmm. uh, after 48 weeks. Now, the key thing to remember here is there were very strict criteria for resistance. 
you, you, you could have a K65R, you could have TANS, but you couldn't have more than three TANS. Mm -hmm. You could not have integrase resistance, and you could not have any darunavir mutations. So mm -hmm. it's a selected group of these highly experimented patients, but he fits all those mm -hmm. criteria. <coughs> and uh, if you look down in the middle, uh, median number of pills per day for these people was five. 40% um, were on more than six or more. Our guy's on nine, I think I mm -hmm. said. Um, and here are the results. At 48 weeks, the switch was actually superior based on virologic endpoints, not based on side effects or moving out of the country, but <laughs> actual virologic endpoints, it was, was mm -hmm. superior, which is interesting. You don't usually see that in, yeah. a, it, in a switch. This is thing. troubling, right? Because you get someone who says, um, boy, I'd love to get into a trial where they reduce my number of pills, and then you get the randomization that they continue on the present regimen. Hmm. But everybody got to switch. Eventually. They just had to wait. Well, that's the thing. Right. right? And at 24 weeks, they didn't have superiority. So the, the superiority occurred later in the course of the study when people are getting closer to their time when they can make the switch. Yeah. So I don't know. Whether you believe the superiority or not. Yeah, but uh, just the fact that it didn't do worse. Yes. Yeah, I, think I think more, you know. Yeah, you, yeah. Can, you can toss away the superiority if you want, but I think mm -hmm. clearly it, it worked. And uh, patient satisfaction was higher, of course, on mm -hmm. the two-pill regimen. So um, the outcome, we put him on that regimen, the, what, what I call the 119 regimen, because that's the number of the study, uh, and he likes it. And uh, <laughs> he, he was not really expecting a single tablet regimen. Mm -hmm. It was just sort of like, if you could, mm -hmm. I'd like it. But, but he was a classic. Uh, now, again, this is all based on the assumption that the archive test was correct. Right? right, we're basing, mm -hmm. and, and in the study, they didn't use archive tests, they used yeah. historical genotypes. So you could, there's always the fear that the archive is, is say, missing a darunavir mutation. Okay. Um, one, one trick I find helpful is that most people who have darunavir mutations have them because of prior use of unboosted fosamprenivir or amprenivir. Yeah. So if you show them pictures of fosamprenivir and amprenivir, remember it was this big? <laughs> um, they provided it with a lubricant, so you could um, <laughs> get it down. Uh, and if they say, no, I absolutely never took that, then, you know, it's less likely that they have darunavir mutations. So, how Trip, many you look skeptical? No, I'm just, how many people in the audience have sent the archive GenoSure <coughs> test? Raise your hand. Oh, a lot of people. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Who hasn't? I, I think I think Tripp's point is really good. You trust them more if they make sense to you based on what you right. know. If they don't make sense, that they probably shouldn't shouldn't be trusted. That's true that's of life. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I mean it's always a gamble. <laughs> oh, we have to do the final test. Sure. Oh wow. All right. So let's go to the uh, uh, same question we asked before. Um, what are the reasons not to switch uh, therapy? I gave you the answer, so I won't tell you again. So simplify dosing, eliminate food restrictions, ensure the patient's on a recommended regimen, prevent toxicity, or all are valid reasons to switch. Okay. Now we get to talk. And we get music. I'm getting commercials. Okay. Well, um, you can just still do the next one. I'll switch my camera around. Oh, okay. So the correct answer is to ensure that the patient, no, yeah, the, to, to ensure the patient's on a recommended regimen. That is considered not to be a, re, a reason in and of itself to switch, and therefore none of the above 
is not a correct answer because of that. But that's it. Thank you. Let's thank Joel and the panel for that case session. So we're going to move to our lunch break next, and here's your instructions. Lunch is in the marketplace at the Kimmel Center, which is on the third floor. Um, people will be directing you outside. Um, and if you are not staying for lunch, please turn your voucher over to one of the staff. What does that mean? Oh, so you got a voucher this morning for lunch. <laughs> Enjoy your lunch. We're going to start exactly at 1.15, and we're exactly on schedule, so thanks. Sorry. Let me put this slide up. Remember how